Oh, friends, it's good to be with you. And I want to um, send out the children to children's ministry, if your parents so wish. Five to 11-year-olds can head out. Not required. But teachers are waiting for you, would love to care for you. I know I, I thank the Lord for this in prayer already, um, but what was that a highlight or what? People being baptized last Sunday. Wasn't that just amazing? And in so many ways, I don't think I've, I've gotten over watching that. And, and one of the things that I hope you saw, if you didn't notice this already last week, um, is that for many years, the majority of the folks who were baptized here, for which I thank God, by the way, were young men and women who had grown up in the church. Side note, you should be praying for boring testimonies for your kids. Boring testimonies glorify God. You know what I mean by that? Okay? I'm not praying for dramatic conversions for my kids. But last Sunday, there were a number of folks, easily half, who had been saved as adults through your ministry. And I just want to point out that that's, that's a new work I think God's doing in our church. And giving us eyes to see people around us, not just as you know, a, a human being with physical needs, but as, a, as an image bearer with spiritual needs who was made to know the Lord. And that we're learning to, to actually speak of his name to them. I mean, in, in some ways... It's what we're here to do, right? It shouldn't be unusual that we're speaking of the name of Jesus. But last Sunday, as I was there probably blocking the view for some of you by the baptism, I was just thinking, Father, may this happen more and more. Amen. That adult men and women, called, we had a college student last week, would come to faith in Christ because you and I are speaking the words of the gospel. I was reading this week in my devotions that that all around the world, Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And we're just along for the ride. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. That's what we saw last Sunday. And we're along for the ride. So, Lord, may it be. I was so thankful. So thankful. If you brought a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll be moving around a bit today. But 1 Corinthians 12 will kind of be our home base. We're going to take a, a break from our study of the Gospel of Mark. But whether we're in Mark or another scripture, friends, I want to remind you that every Sunday we gather as the people of God under the Word of God for the glory of God. I don't know if that's why you came in today, but... If you are sitting there thinking, why am I here? I just gave you a reason. You are here as part of the people of God under the word of God for the glory of God. And that means that every Sunday meeting is a significant event in the life of our church. Every Sunday, the Lord is present here to convict, to comfort, to exhort, and to encourage us that we might be stirred up to love and good works. And today is no exception because today uh, we have the joy of seeing our brother Chris DeLoglos installed as a pastor at Kingsway. 
And so I have, I have prayed, Chris, that God would use my remarks this morning to stir you up to love and good works. But lest you take on the role of a spectator right now, sort of sitting back, oh, that's right, today's about Chris. Uh, it's not just about Chris. I pray that God would use what I shared today to stir you up to love and good works. And the reason I say that is that I'm convinced as a pastor that Chris is not the only one in this room whom God has called to gospel ministry. To the contrary, every member of the church has a ministry. And in preparation for installing Chris, I want to make three simple points from God's word. And that's the first one. That's the first one. That's an important one. Point one, every member has a ministry. I wonder how many of you have heard that on an elder installation Sunday. But we need to start there. Every member has a ministry. If you are a Christian, if you've made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and are living out that profession as a faithful member in a local church, then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is just as true of you as it is of Chris. Just as true. This is not a verse for Chris. This is a verse for every Christian. Listen to what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Look at this. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, I, want you to, I want you to focus on that phrase, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Think about that. When you become a Christian, something at the core of who you are is completely transformed. Okay, the Bible calls it your heart. Your, your heart in the Bible, isn't just this muscle pumping blood throughout your body, though we're all very thankful it's doing that right now, but your heart is your spiritual center, if you would. It's the center of your deepest desires, your strongest affections, your, your greatest ambitions. And from the moment of your conception, my conception, the Bible tells us that our heart our greatest desires, our strongest affections, our deepest ambitions has been corrupted by sin. That means that I was born with my desires, my pleasures, and my ambitions in the driver's seat of my life. And you are too. I was not born desiring to please God, love God, and glorify God. In the words of the prophet Ezekiel, I was born with a heart of stone. That's not a flattering analogy. (laughs) A heart that is spiritually dead and, and cold toward the things of God. But then there came a day, friends, in my life, and if you're a Christian in your life, when something remarkable happened. Ezekiel 36, this is what happened to you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. You realize that's the last thing that should ever be said of us? Clean. 
clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, here's what that means. When you become a Christian, you don't just enter a new census religious belief category. Okay, you go from having a heart of stone that's spiritually dead toward pleasing God, loving God, glorifying God, to having a new heart of flesh that longs to please God, love God, and glorify God. And that transformation takes place when God literally puts His Spirit inside of you. Think of it this way. When you become a Christian, Jesus moves in to the control room of your life. So that his desires, his affections, his ambitions are increasingly your desires, your affections, and your ambitions. So to be created in Christ Jesus for good works means then to have your heart transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The moment you trust Jesus as your Savior, so that you are empowered by God to do things for God that you had absolutely no interest in ever doing before he moved in or had any power to do. Here's what that means and why I say every member is a ministry. It's not your natural gifts or personality that qualify you for gospel ministry. Tracking with that? It's not your natural gifts or your personality that qualifies you for gospel ministry. What qualifies you for gospel ministry is that Jesus has moved in to the control room of your heart. And Chris is not the only person in this room in whom he has done that. Because Chris is not the only person in this room whom God has filled with the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. You see, Spirit, don't, don't think God's sort of floating out somewhere. That Spirit is, is the one who moves in you when you become a Christian. Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Christian, don't write yourself out of that verse. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 
Listen, Paul's point in those verses is not that every Christian has one of the spiritual gifts I just read. Okay, that, that list is not exhaustive. That list is representative. Paul's point is that every member has a ministry because every member has the Spirit of God. You have a ministry in this church, if you're a Christian, that might not look like Chris's, but it is not less of a ministry. And when I say a ministry in this church, I don't just mean a role that you fulfill in this building, okay, within these four walls. I mean a role that you've been uniquely called to and empowered by the Spirit of God where you participate in what He is doing in your family, in your community, and around the world as a member of our local church. It's really that big. So, let's think of two examples here to make this practical. I wonder if you would how you would answer this question. Can a mom with young children who is sacrificing her sleep and her sanity to meet an endless stream of physical needs do gospel ministry? There is way too much indecision in this room right now. But that's why I ask. I would say Absolutely. Because she is showing her clamoring kiddos what the steadfast love of God is like. As she lays her life down at great cost to herself. Who, who else did that, by the way? Jesus. So that they see through her life, through every spoonful, through every diaper, the steadfast love of God. She's doing gospel ministry. She hasn't been installed on stage for that. But it's the same ministry. Okay, can it, can it, how about a young man who's working at a construction site? Could he do gospel ministry? Better. Better. Good. Good. I'm going to keep asking until we're quick on this. Absolutely he can. I mean, through the way that he shows up on time to his job, diligent, he's pointing to the faithfulness of God, reflecting the faithfulness of his God. You know, when he refrains from, from coarse joking or speaks respectfully of women on that job, what, what is he doing? He's testifying to the, to the holiness of God. And when, when the other guys around him say, dude, what is up with you? Your life doesn't make any sense. You're weird. Well, then he has a chance to say, the Lord laid his hand on me. That's all. Can I tell you about him? I'd say it this way. Every action that you take, Christian, on the road of obeying Christ is an action that holds forth the supremacy of Christ. And if the supremacy of Christ is the goal of the gospel, then every action you take on the road of obedience becomes gospel ministry. And sometimes that ministry will be spoken, sometimes that ministry will be unspoken, but 
all of it is empowered by the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. And I think we go wrong on this sometimes because we start thinking when it comes to gospel ministry that that it's like a, a team that you play on where there's only one position. What's the position? Pastor. The man of God. Look out. Look, he's coming through. Star of the team. I mean, really the only guy on the team, but star of the team. We, we think of it, we can think of gospel ministry that way. If the gospel ministry is a team, it's one position and it's pastors. So you're either a pastor and you're doing gospel ministry. Or you're just kind of cheering on the sidelines. Go pastor. I do. I love my pastor. He's great. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I want to exhort you as members of this church to never do that to me and never do that to Chris. Because the moment you think that I'm on a team you're not on, you have denied the presence of the spirit of the living God in you. And that's a big deal. Because it costs him a lot to place his spirit inside of you. I'm thankful this week as I thought through so many members of this church, that that is not the way you approach ministry. And I, I think one of, the, one of the sweetest fruits of what God has done here the last couple of years is he has pushed and deployed all sorts of members here into ministry that many of us were never doing before. You know, whether you're, just wrote down some examples, whether you're leading an American Heritage Girls chapter or sharing God's word with inmates in prison or taking gifts to children in foster care or hosting community group in your home or going to Bolivia on a missions trip. I mean, I, I could just give example after example of members here who know they have a ministry and are doing it. But this morning as we prepare to install Chris as an elder, I want to remind you, church, every member has a ministry. And if you want to know what yours is, don't get bogged down in spiritual gift assessments. Don't. There's a place for asking the Lord, Lord, what spiritual gifts have you given me? But don't get bogged down in those things. If if you're sitting here thinking, Matthew, okay, abstractly I agree with you. Every member has a ministry. But I don't have a clue what mine is. Well, then here's your question. You answer this question this week. How can I testify to the worth of Christ, to the people God has already placed around me, In my family, my work, or my school. Or if you like to work out, in the gym. That's it. How can I testify to the worth of Christ, to the people God's already placed around me, in my family, at work, at school, or in the gym? It's not a 40-question assessment and out pops your chosen ministry. Look at the opportunities that God has placed around you and ask the Lord, how can I say yes? Every member has a ministry. Some will do it publicly, some privately, but every member, every Christian has a ministry. Here's the second point. Point number two. This one's going to get a little closer to home. Don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. Every member has a ministry, but don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. Back to 1 Corinthians 12. Let's look at verse 14. Paul says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
if the foot should say, you know what? Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong in the body. That would not make him any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, listen, God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I think this comparison that I want to warn you against can start off really subtly. Man, I would really like to be a King's Kids teacher in the seven to eight year olds class. I think it would be so much fun just just to play a small role in, in transferring the gospel to the next generation. I just love what God's doing in there. Okay, fast forward three months. I really wish someone would ask me to teach in that class. I mean, don't, don't people recognize that, that the spiritual gifts God's given me are uniquely suited to bearing fruit in that exact setting? I mean, I know there's a lot of other ministry needs and opportunities available, but, but that's what I'm really cut out to do. What, what's with these people? I mean, don't, don't, they, don't they recognize their talents? I mean, bless her heart, but Miss Stevens told Mr. Taylor, who told me that Miss Harris hadn't brought a snack that coordinated with the curriculum for two weeks in a row. I mean, why leave her in with that kind of nonsense when I could teach the class? One time I did, at least four parents came up and said their kids thought I did a great job. Obviously, they didn't tell the class coordinator. Fast forward another three months. You know what? If I can't serve in the 78-year-old's class, I'm not going to serve anywhere. That's what God has gifted me to do. That's what I am gifted to do. And I wish that all those class coordinators would quit arrogantly assuming that they know the best place for me to serve better than I do and God does. Who does that coordinator think he is anyway? I've been teaching 15 years longer than anyone else in this church. Where's the respect? Now, to alleviate your fears... I'm not calling out a current situation in this church. That was completely made up, and it is based on neither a historical or present trouble. But I think it illustrates what can go wrong inside of me. I was thinking back to a time when I was primarily doing um, ministry through music. And I was on a part of a group of guys in Sovereign Grace. Kingsway is part of a family churches called Sovereign Grace Churches, um, who were working with a guy named Bob Coughlin um, to 
try to help us grow in our music ministry as a family of churches. And so a couple of the guys on this team would be asked to lead worship at these National Worship God conferences. And I was one of like two or three guys that never got asked. Oh, yes. You know, it's the same thing. You start comparing. You start struggling. And I think that situations like that, folks, reveal that we naturally slide into finding our identity in what we do for God instead of in what God does for us. There's a difference. And before you know it, if you start comparing your ministry to other ministries, your your joy, your happiness, your contentment, get all bound up in what you're getting to do or not do. You know, it might be something you used to do, but you're not doing now. Maybe something you've wanted to do, but aren't doing. Regardless, you're quietly or not so quietly comparing yourself to someone who's getting to do your ministry. And if the comparison is favorable, well, then you wind up arrogant and bitter. If the comparison is unfavorable, they're so much better than me. I'll never be able to do that, though I would love to. Well, then you fall into self-pity and depression. And either way, comparison never goes well. Never. And gospel ministry becomes a means not to glorifying God, but to asserting your own self-worth. And that's, that's what the Corinthians were doing. Right? So, so what were they doing? They were elevating a particular spiritual gift, the church in Corinth, the gift of tongues, and saying, this is the gift. If you have this gift, you are of the echelon of the spiritual. I mean, other gifts? This gift. They, they, they were denying the breadth of spiritual gifts, the breadth of opportunities for ministry. They, they created a hierarchy, and it's so easy to do that, to believe that one form of ministry is more important than another form of ministry. So, so please hear me on this point. Okay, this is what I want to encourage you to call to mind and therefore have hope. God is a sovereign king. He's a sovereign king. That means he's in control of the ministry opportunities you have now and will have in the future. He's the one who arranges the members in the body. He's the one who assigns particular gifts to one member and not another member. Therefore, every one of us has a choice to make. Am I going to trust God with the spiritual gifts and ministry opportunities he has given me right now? Or am I not? That's the choice. Every one of us has to make that. There's nothing wrong, I should add, with desiring a particular gift or a particular form of ministry. But friend, take care that your desire for gospel ministry in a particular form doesn't become a desire to be God. And you begin to begrudge those who appear to be getting in your way. Okay, you and I are not the master architect. God's the master architect. And that means he's going to use both the wise and the unwise decisions of people around you to achieve his good purposes in your life. Think of it this way. The one who is powerful enough to move into your control room and give you spiritual gifts certainly is powerful enough to create opportunities 
for you to use those spiritual gifts at just the right time. When he says it's time, he'll do it. So be faithful where God's planted you. Don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. Every member is a ministry. Don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. Here's the third and final point. Pastoral ministry is a significant gift from God. Every member is a ministry. Don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. And pastoral ministry is a significant gift from God. At the, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 28. Paul makes a statement that at first glance when I read this, I thought, did you just like hit backspace on everything else you said in this chapter? Look at what he says. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? I mean, the obvious answer, Paul, is, is no, right? But then he says this, notice. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. I read that this week and I thought, well, maybe I just won't quote that on Sunday. <laughs> it doesn't line up with the second point very well. Let's edit that out. You can't do that. It's the Bible. So you have to wrestle with it and say, Lord, what do you, what do you mean here? Well, I think what Paul's doing, he's not schizophrenic. He's not contradicting himself. He's simply recognizing that some gifts, some forms of ministry, have the potential to do greater good, or I should add also greater harm to the church by virtue of the magnitude of their influence on the whole body. Okay, like how Gordon Fee says it, I think we've got this quote for you. It's not so much that one is more important than the other. Notice that. Nor that this is necessarily their order of authority, but that one has precedence over the other in the founding and building up of the local assembly. Every spiritual gift is given by the same Spirit of God and is equally important in the life of the local church. That's why every member is in ministry. Don't compare your ministry to someone else's ministry. But there are some spiritual gifts that are not greater in importance, but because of their visibility and their public nature, they have the potential for greater good or greater harm. And the pastoral office, particularly the teaching expression of that office, like what I'm doing right now, where I'm speaking and a whole room is listening, okay? That's one of those gifts that has the potential to do great good or great harm. And so I want to I take a few minutes just to explain from Scripture, before you hear from Chris, our understanding of the biblical office of an elder, okay, that Chris is about to assume. So I'm going to lay this out very quickly in the form of six principles. And this is basically a condensed version of a, a paper that we worked up as a team a few years ago. Okay, so principle one, I'm going to move through these quickly. God established elders to lead the local church. 
In Acts 20, Paul gives a charge to the elders in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why are men set apart by the Spirit of God as overseers? It's because the local church is precious in the sight of God. And having bought the church at the cost of his own blood, God continues to care for us through the oversight of men he has fashioned and called to the office of elder. Okay, That means, church, that the foundation of the New Testament office of an elder is not a call to authority, but a call to care. The call to care comes with a real measure of authority. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you an overseer, which means he gives you authority to exercise oversight. But I say this because I don't want you to think that the whole idea of eldership is about who is in charge. Who's in charge? I want to be in charge. Should they be in charge? Who's in charge? The call to be an elder is a call to care for the church. And that call comes with authority to do so. In other words, the primary governance structure God has established for the local church is eldership, men with the authority to care. Okay, principle two. Every elder is called to pastor. Okay, in many churches, the pastor is the full-time guy who does the preaching, counseling, and program administration. He's hired by an elder board, which consists of a group of mature, respected men in the church who make all the decisions. So the pastor cares for the people. The elders make all the important governance decisions. Pastor over here, elders over here. We don't believe that's biblical. The pastor cares for the people. And God never separates the ruling function from the caring function. In other words, every elder is called to be a pastor. The only people to whom God entrusts authority to rule are the people whom God has called to care. In the New Testament, the word for pastor, the word for elder, are used interchangeably. That's why. God doesn't separate the call to rule from the call to care. You see this in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, what's he tell the elders to do? Rule, shepherd, the flock of God. Exercising oversight. In other words, every man whom God calls to the office of elder is a man whom God has called to pastor. If elder is the office, pastor is the job description. They're kept together in scripture. Principle three. Elders pastor by leading, feeding, protecting, and caring for the church. Chris, if that's overwhelming, this is your opportunity to leave the room (laughs) and not be installed. Every time I read that or think that's like, oh, Lord, help. That's from your spirit, that's daunting. But that's, that's the call. Elders pastor by leading, feeding, protecting, and caring for the church. So in 1 Timothy 5, Paul speaks of elders who rule well. Okay, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, if an elder doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There's a call to lead in that. 
In Titus 1, we see a call to feed the flock, teaching the word of God, especially the truth of the gospel. Paul says, He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastor's called to lead, but he's also called to feed with the truth of Scripture. And the reason for that is if you take a 20-year snapshot of the life of any church, one of the most influential factors determining is that church going to be thriving or struggling is if the truth of the gospel through the word of God is being faithfully fed to God's people. That is one of the things on which the health of a church rises or falls. That's why elders are called not just to lead and pastor by leading, but to pastor by feeding. They also pastor by protecting the flock, particularly from from false doctrine that would undermine our confidence in the gospel and by caring for the flock. I, I love the fact that God cares enough for us to give us men who can reflect his care to us, not perfectly, but faithfully. And so an elder is called to pastor by following in the footsteps of the, the chief shepherd, by demonstrating strong, tender, and discerning spiritual care for the church. Fourth principle. Elders must meet specific character and skill requirements. Think of it this way. Ministry, how we serve, always flows from life, who we are. You can't separate how you serve from who you are. And Paul doesn't do that. So he gives lists of essential character traits for elders. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And I, you, I should have you know that every one of those qualifications is no less the call of God on every mature, godly man in the church. Except for one. Skill requirement. First Timothy three two, he must be able to teach. Able to teach. And that matters because throughout the, the pastoral epistles, Paul repeatedly commands those who leave the church to teach the church. It's it's corporate, it's public, it's authoritative. So so without mandating that every elder must have the same level of teaching gift or exercise their teaching gift in the same context. Every elder must have some form of recognized public teaching ministry. Okay? He should be comfortable behind the pulpit, able to command the minds and hearts of God's people as he opens the word. And it's the capacity for public preaching that distinguishes an elder who's pastoring the flock from good guys in the church, godly men in the church. A pastor isn't just a really, really good guy. We're a really, really godly man. He's a preacher. And I say that because there are many men in this church. I look at your character. I look at the way you love your wife, care for your kids. I think, I look up to you. I need to learn from you. But the elders who pastor in the church are not primarily or exclusively just sort of the spiritual cream of the crop, as if the goal is to grow to become more like Jesus, and right before you do, you become an elder. No. No, what sets apart Chris from another man in the church who is no less godly is that God's given him a spiritual gift to teach and to embrace the call of an elder. It's a different gift. It's an important gift. It's equal value in the sight of God. 
Principle five. Financial compensation is encouraged, but not required. And this is a big one, particularly for Chris. I want to tell you why. So, So the Bible tells us that spiritual leaders have a right to receive financial compensation for their labor. And that there are strategic benefits to building an eldership with vocational pastors. But vocational eldership is not required. Not required. So after, after Paul asserts his rights for compensation to the church in Corinth, he makes clear in 1 Corinthians 9.12 why he chooses not to exercise that right in every case. Listen to what he says. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here's what that means for us, church. We we need to make room for potential elders who desire, I think I could speak for Chris, desire to eventually pastor in a full-time vocational capacity, but are willing and able to serve our church in a non-vocational capacity until our income grows. Here's why this matters. We never want to be a church that says to a man who is called and gifted to be an elder, well, you can't serve until the budget lines up with that. No, we don't want to do that. We don't want to start with the budget. We want to start with the spiritual gift, the call of God. And, and Chris, let me just say, before I wrap this up, that the fact that you work a full-time job, which teaching is a very hard job, way underappreciated and underpaid, side note, and then in your leftover time, <laughs> serve as a pastor is an unbelievable expression of unselfishness. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for that, buddy. I want to thank you that you are not, that you are willing to say, Lord, though I would love one day to be doing this in a full-time vocational sense, I'm not going to let finances stop me from being faithful. And when you could be watching more football games, you are serving the Lord here. And I thank you for that so much. So much. Compensation is encouraged but not required. Lastly, a pastoral call has to be identified, tested, and confirmed. Okay, that's a long way of saying that it's not enough for a man to simply desire to be a pastor. You don't sign yourself up for pastoral ministry. Some people do. You, know, you can kind of go rent an ordination or something, but ugh, don't. And the reason is that in Scripture, the call to pastor as an elder isn't just an internal confirmation thing. It's an external confirmation thing. Why are the character requirements given to all Christians, the whole church? Because all of you as members have a role to play in confirming that a man who desires to pastor as an elder is in fact called by God to do that. It's not just enough for Chris to stand up and say, sign me up. As a church, we have to say, Chris, we agree with you. We are happy for you to be signed up because we see God's grace on you. We affirm his call. The church has to be involved in testing and confirming an elder. And Kingsway, that's the process we've been engaged in since January with Chris, that we've known him for longer after the last 10 months, he has participated in elders meetings. He's, he's preached on Sunday morning. He's provided pastoral care for many people in our church. And 
near the end of September, I sent out an evaluation to all of our members asking for your assessment of Chris's calling, his character, and his competence. And the reason for that is that as a pastor, I need your eyes and ears to help discern as a church family, is God calling this man to this position? And as I told our members in a letter um, earlier in November, the overwhelming consensus from our members was yes. We want to receive Chris the Loglos as one of our pastors at Kingsway. And that gave me confidence, right? That means this is not just Matthew and Chris kind of getting together and, hey, let's do this cool thing and make a big Sunday out of it. No, this is us as a church family saying, Lord, we recognize your grace on this man to pastor us. I'm grateful for your role in that process, church. I should clarify, for Chris's sake, that he has already been ordained. Okay, so he came to Kingsway, having previously served as a pastor out a church out west. And so it's, it's more accurate, don't, I don't want us to get it hung up on wording, to think of this morning as an installation more than an ordination. Though Chris is going to renew his ordination vows this morning. And before you do that, brother, I wanted to read very quickly some excerpts from a couple of the assessments that your brothers and sisters here sent in about you. Just two. I just picked two. Chris has walked through many hard times and done it with grace and dignity. I believe that his children reflect Christ's character and that that has been demonstrated to them by their father. I feel certain that he will bless our church in all he does. He is humble and gentle. Chris displays steadfastness as a leader and servant. He is easy to approach and talk with, and he is quick to listen and points us to Jesus through prayer. He is a wise counselor, yet never comes across arrogant in his role. He seems to lead his family well. His style of teaching is quiet, filled with conviction, as truth is preached from the pulpit. We always leave reflecting on what God is saying to our hearts. It's impressive to see his commitment to international ministries, even as he also leads a small, I don't think that's the right word, a very large and growing Hispanic community group. (laughs) He is easy to follow as a leader. Uh, Buddy, I love you. And I hope that in those words you hear the honor of your church family. And before you renew your ordination vows and are installed here, I'd like to give you a chance to come and express your heart to your family. So come on up. Let's welcome Chris. Thank you. Thank you all. It's a joy to be here. Before I begin my remarks, I want to welcome two couples in particular who have been of 
significant influence in my life that you will never know because they are guests here with us, but um, part of who I am is because of their ministry and their life and watching them and learning from them. And the first is a gentleman that I work with where I teach, and you won't know, but this man has a significant, he's a colleague of mine there, significant influence as he walks through the halls and um, cares for the souls of students and parents, even though that isn't, if you will, his official role. And that would be Elder James Burrell and his wife, Mrs. Burrell. Thank you for coming, brother. It's a joy to have you here. I wish you could hear just some of his stories. He brings God into everything that he does, and you can see God working in his heart. That's been an impact on my life. The second is a couple that I have known for over 20 years, and I have watched their lives. That They have reached out to people again and again in their communities who they work with side by side, so much of what Matthew was talking about, in terms of just ministering next to the people that you are with. And again, you won't know this all about them, but they are people given to evangelism, local and international. And that's Debbie and Dooley Bazell. Thank you, friends. When we transitioned here to Kingsway in 2009, we walked into a church where we immediately, from day one, experienced the love and grace of God. And it's a sincere welcome from all of you. We experienced your care. We experienced community. And we experienced a group of people who were passionate about their relationship with Jesus. And for us, that was important. Kingsway has been that place for us a home of grace. We were here for about four months and things began to get turbulent. And if you've been here through that time, you know what I mean. And yet we can say God never left us. God has been with us. His grace has been among us. And for that, we are very, very grateful Having served in pastoral ministry prior to Kingsway, it was my question as I entered here whether God would call me to serve in pastoral ministry here as the same. And I regularly asked God that question. I brought it before my wife, before the elders of this church, before several godly brothers, but never felt for many years that it was the appropriate time. Much of that had to do with some of my employment commitments outside of the church that I needed to do to care for my family. However, in December of 2014, I believe I received from the Lord, if you will, a very gracious nudge. Husbands would recognize that as maybe an elbow in the side from their wife. But I received what I believe with all my heart, a confirmation from the Lord that now was the time. Now was the time to return to pastoral ministry. I presented this to the elders, and they welcomed 
and graciously have shepherded the process. So I stand here, first of all, grateful to you as a church family. Thank you for passionately loving the Savior. Thank you for passionately seeking to make him the focus of your lives. It is your chief occupation. Your commitment to love him, to serve him, and to make him known is what has been for us not only a comfort, but a strength and a reason for us to be here. In this environment, among you, by his spirit, through confirmation of his word and godly counsel, I have experienced what I believe is God's call to follow him to serve this church in pastoral ministry alongside brothers and sisters who are likewise serving in their appointed roles. Secondly, I eagerly look to encourage, strengthen, as God allows, to participate in this church in whatever ministry I can. Over the last six years, I have watched God through our turbulent times, raise up new ministries, raise up and prosper ministries. To mention a few, how can we say enough about how God uses the food bank ministry? There's far more than just stomachs being fed. There are souls that are being fed, and there are lives that are being changed, and we have watched God do that and raise that up. We've watched as God, when people left this church, raised up new musicians, raised up new worship leaders, raised up new sound technicians. And when we were threatened with our corporate worship was going to really take a dent, God has remained faithful. And we've experienced him Sunday by Sunday together. God has remained faithful among us. Thirdly, God has brought a dear group of people who speak a different language, which they would call the language of heaven, Spanish, who, thanks be to God, have made their home among us. And through their love and friendship, not only are we practicing our Spanish, but we are seeing that God has a purpose among every tribe every tongue, and every nation. And they remind us that every Sunday morning, as they are not just a fringe part. They are us. Amen? Gracias, hermanos y hermanas. God has brought up mission opportunities from different countries as well as we have seen God raise up um, our efforts in Bolivia and in the future Thailand, and as we support in South Africa, God is doing that. God is raising that up. That's something he is doing, and we have watched that take place when really we were weak. He is strong. Unless we forget because we can come and we can just experience it on a regular basis, the very encouragement that our souls need every day, but we receive Sunday by Sunday by Sunday through the preaching and encouragement of God's word. We receive that on a regular basis. 
And in the midst of so much challenge, I think, in my opinion, we have heard preaching increase, God's word come forth greater than before. Friends, God is among us. He is doing ministry. He is at work. We have to be careful that we don't evaluate things based upon just what we see with our eyes. We need to trust his word. And to that end, I seek now as a pastor to continue to labor among you, to make his word known, to pray for you, as I have for this church many times, and to seek people to be strengthened in their ministries and in their leadership capacities and see new ministries developed. There are many, many ministries and there are many, many callings. May we see more men and women and children step into faithful ministries, whatever they might be, whether it's simply across the aisle or across the street or across the desk or across the cubicle or across borders. May we see God do that among us. But chief among my passions We sang this just a few minutes ago. We are children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, bought with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. Brothers and sisters, you and I right now, today, and then tomorrow, already have relationships of people who desperately need and desire hope. They are hopeless. They don't know the love of Jesus. You don't need to create, in many cases, a new relationship. We know them. And we are there planted in their lives. May God help us to continue to grow. To share our lives with them. To build friendships with them. And to share the source of hope with them that we have. Because there's a world that longs to know. There are people who are driving down Midlothian Turnpike. There are people that will pull in and park next to you where you work. Who don't have a clue about their eternity. May God give us grace to build relationships with them, to share the hope that we know. That's my hope. That's my passion for us as members here at Kingsway. almost feels like the wedding last weekend, Chris, with these vows. But I'm thankful that you would be willing to have me ask you these questions and for you to affirm your response. And then I have a couple questions for all the members here.
So I'm going to start with Chris. Chris, do you promise to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock? I do. Do you promise to faithfully guard the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer? And do you promise to protect that flock from false teaching, division, and dissension? I do. Do you promise to care for the flock of God, not as a hireling, but as as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, caring for his sheep as the precious ones for whom he died? I do. Do you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus in this congregation, promise to preach the word in season and out of season? And do you promise to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, enduring suffering, while remaining sober-minded in all of your preaching and teaching? And will you do the work of an evangelist among those whom God has given you charge? I do. Do you declare sincerely before God that you believe all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the sovereign grace statement of faith fully agree with the scriptures? Do you own that statement as the statement and confession of your faith? And do you promise to teach and defend these doctrines in public and private? I do. Do you promise further that if in the future you come to have any reservations about any of these doctrines, you will share these reservations with your eldership and the Regional Assembly of Elders? I do. Do you promise to keep a close watch on yourself and to walk humbly before others, to be self-suspicious of your own motives, to invite criticism from others, and to make yourself accountable to those whom God has put in your life? I do. Do you submit without exception to the explicitly mandated practices of the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order? Affirming that form of government is a wise and suitable application of scriptural principles. I do. Do you promise to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to show yourself in all respects, in action and in speech, to be a model of good works, integrity and dignity, so that neither the church nor our Savior Jesus Christ nor the gospel may be brought into reproach? I do. Do you promise to continually seek the gifts of the Spirit that you might serve God's people, not in the energy of the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to carry out your ministry without fear of man? I do. In light of Chris's responses, if you're a member of this church, I'd invite you to stand right now so I may ask you some questions. Do you, the people of Kingsway Community Church, receive Chris DeLoglos as your pastor? If so, please respond, we do. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from him with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due biblical exercise of his leadership? Do you promise to supply him with whatever material support he may need to fulfill his ministry among you? Do you promise to encourage him in his labors and to assist his ministry and leadership for your spiritual edification, the evangelization of the lost, 
and the promotion of God's glory. Thank you. You can be seated. Chris, in light of your vows and the congregation's response, um, it is a joy to see you installed as an elder in this church. We love you.